Welcome to Bay Area. Uh, good to be together with you uh, this morning. Lots of things going on this week. School started and kids are here, kids are gone, families are uh, busy. Glad that we're worshiping together this morning. We are right in the middle of this sermon series, we're calling it Fearless, where we are taking some weeks during the summer and looking at the life and times of this guy, Joshua. And we're in the middle of the series. We are not in the middle of the book. Okay, we're still kind of the front end uh, of the book. But we are going to dig into some very interesting things this morning uh, that happen in the life of Joshua and the life of the Israelites that he happens to be a part of and be leading. Um, a month ago, I challenged you to wear a red wristband. Man, a bunch of you still have that on. Awesome. Uh, kind of remind us to be strong and courageous. You hear people that have been doing the same thing for a long time often say, nothing surprises me anymore. I've, I've done this so long, nothing surprises me anymore. The Israelites have been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua has been in that group wandering 40 years in the wilderness. Something is going to surprise them, okay? We saw last week they were surprised two weeks ago, I think, actually when the Jordan River uh, opened up and they crossed by, uh, crossed through on dry land. We're in chapter 5 this morning. Go ahead and be opening your Bibles, your app to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to see some other things that surprise the Israelites and how they handle those surprises is going to go a long way in whether or not they claim the land and the life that God wants them to have. So here's how chapter 5 opens. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we'd crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Okay, very first verse, we get a little bit of a recap about what just happened. God has led his people into the promised land. The problem is the promised land is occupied by the enemies of God. But God has led them in in a pretty spectacular way, right? The Jordan River at flood stage opens up, builds up, and they walk through on dry land, and everybody has heard about it. It, it is a miracle of biblical proportions, okay? Everybody is talking about what the God of Israel has done to get those people in this land. Now, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 5 that the enemies of God didn't have the courage to face the children of God. And we really could stop right there and talk about that for the next uh, half hour. You know, we could talk about the fact that the courage of the enemy fails when confronted with the power of God. And that's exactly what happens right here in the beginning of chapter 5. The courage of the enemy has failed because they see the power of the God of Israel. And you would think that, that now is the time for Israel to act, Right? Even though, even though those Israelites, they haven't done a thing in the, in the promised land yet. They have fought zero battles. All they did was cross the Jordan on dry land. They made no military move. And already the power of God has instilled great fear in the enemies of God. And why in the world didn't they say, here we go. We're in. They're afraid. Let's strike while the iron's hot. Let's, let's storm the gates. 
while the enemy is afraid, while the enemy's morale is low, the timing could not be better. Let's attack. But God has something very different in mind in the moment. I told you that there was going to be some surprises here in chapter 5. And I'm going to tell you right up front that, that the first surprise that we're going to talk about today, it's weird. Okay? I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of bizarre. If you've got your Bible open and you're reading ahead a little bit, or if you know this story well enough, which I bet some of you have forgotten this part of the story, you're going to agree, okay, this, this is weird. This is absolutely a surprise. A bigger surprise to the Israelite men than to us, but there's a surprise coming up, okay? It's kind of shocking. Here you go. Verse 2. At that time, remember, they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They just got into the promised land. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibath Haraloth. Now, <clears throat> there are parts of this story that we're going to skip, okay? <laughs> there are parts of the story of Joshua we're going to just pass right over. It's 24 chapters long. We're going to skip huge parts of the story of Joshua. I really wanted to skip this part. It was not my heart's desire to preach a sermon on communal circumcision. And I'm sure that it wasn't your heart's desire to hear that sermon. However, there's something really important going on here. It is important to the story of the Israelites. It is important to God's story, which makes it important to our story as well. And we need to talk about it. And just to, um, just to relieve a little bit of tension, I'm going to tell you this story. Two eight-year-old boys were sharing a hospital room one day, and they got to talking, and the one boy says, so what are, you, what are you doing in here? And the little kid says, well, I'm in here for a tonsillectomy. I've got to get my tonsils out. And the first kid said, that's nothing. Had that done last year? They put you under, you wake up, you eat all the ice cream you want. It's great. Then he asked, so what are you doing in here? And the second kid says, well... I'm here to have a circumcision done. And the first kid went, ooh. I had that done when I was born. I couldn't walk for a year. Okay. My wife told me, do not tell that joke. So that's all on me, okay? But that is just, that's just a lighthearted way of saying what God is asking His people. Well, He's not asking. What God is telling His people to do, it is no small thing. Think about this. They've crossed into the promised land. They are very close to Jericho. And Joshua is about to disable his entire fighting force. They're all going to be disabled. Why? Why that? Why then? What did this mean in the moment? And how is this part of God's bigger story? Now, thankfully, the very next verse tells us why. And the answer actually goes back several generations to a covenant that God made with a guy by the name of Abraham. And we, we've talked about this before. But I'll remind you that a covenant is much more binding than a contract. It is much deeper than a promise. 
And it's much more important than an oath. In Scripture, a covenant was something that was divinely sacred. So God has made a covenant with this man Abraham and his descendants, and part of that covenant involves a surgical procedure that they call circumcision, the physical sign of God's covenant with his people. So here's how the text explains it in verse 4. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out all, all the people that it came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. And then he says in verse 7, So he, God, raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now, Levitical law states that a Hebrew boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. So the question becomes, what happened with this generation? Why had this not taken place? And why is God commanding it now? What's going on here? Most likely, this is because of the negligence and the disobedience of that previous generation. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't have the courage to trust God and cross the river 40 years earlier. They basically told God, we would rather wander in the wilderness until we're dead than to have to go across that, that river and face those people. And so God said, okay, you do that then. And he allowed them to wander in the wilderness until that generation had died. But the generation that was being led into the land, this is part of God's covenant. And God wanted his people to be marked as people of the covenant. But the question still remains, why now? Why didn't they do this on the other side of the river? Why didn't they do this last year? Or last month? Or next year? Why now? When they're just into the promised land. When they're so close to the city of Jericho. Here's why I think it happened inside the land. This is a reset button for God's people. God has led them into enemy territory, not far from where they're going to face their first battle, and now he's asking this of his people. And here's what I think is the takeaway uh, from this surprising command. You, know, you get away from the cultural context, and I think the, the big takeaway for us is God is asking his people to surrender to him. It's actually part of a much bigger story, this command. This act it is part of a much grander story. And I'm going to suggest that it's part of a bigger story of grace. Think about this through the lens of Joshua chapter 5. The Israelites did not choose to be in a covenant relationship with God. God chose to be in a covenant relationship with the Israelites. They didn't do anything to earn God's love. They didn't do anything to earn God's forgiveness or God's patience, or God's protection. They hadn't done anything to earn this. This is all God. This is all grace. And I find it fascinating that God makes this seemingly strange, surprising command, and the Israelites don't push back. They don't complain. They don't say, wait, whoa, hey, this isn't the right time, and this isn't the right place. They don't do any of that. Yes, it was unpleasant. 
Yes, it was dangerous. Yeah, it didn't make any military sense. But they seemed to understand that the grace of the covenant was more important than the strength of a soldier, the strength of an army. Uh, they recognized that to be, to be covered by the grace of the covenant, they were going to have to surrender to God. And they realized how important that was. Look what the Lord says in, in verse 9. Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. God said, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The reproach of Egypt was that previous generation. Their unfaithfulness. Their unwillingness. Their unwillingness to, to trust God. And God says, I'm rolling that away today. And by the way, God's going to continue to roll that away. You know, read the book of Joshua. Read, read the book that follows, the book of Judges. This generation, the next few generations, they don't get it right either. They got their own issues with trust. And they got their own issues with obedience. But guess what? That doesn't mean they find themselves outside of the grace of God. Because that's not how grace works. Grace continues to care for, to care about. Grace continues to love and to give a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a twentieth chance. And the good news for us today is that this reality is still abundantly true and absolutely available in the person of Jesus Christ. God is still asking us, His people, to surrender. To surrender our will to His will. To surrender our agenda to His agenda. Again, this act of surrender, it doesn't earn God's grace. But I think in surrender we claim God's grace. We don't earn it. But that grace leads us to obedience... And I think that grace leads us to complete surrender. It's part of a much bigger story of grace. It's also part of a much bigger story of rescue. This is important. Because grace can offer the forgiveness of sins, but grace can't take away the consequence of the law. There's a difference. You, know, you look at somebody that you might know today and they get in trouble with the law for one reason or another. Something they did, some activity they were a part of, you know, something, something that happened... You can forgive that person, but you don't have the authority and you don't have the power to take away the consequences of what they've done. You can't go into the courtroom and pull them out. You can't go into the, the jail cell and, and you know, remove them. You don't have that power. You can forgive them, but you can't rescue them. God's people are slaves in Egypt for centuries. They are wilderness wanderers for decades. And God didn't just offer grace and forgiveness for their disobedience. He offered rescue and redemption as part of the covenant. Now, fast forward again. The good news for us is the one who gives us grace is also the one who rescues us. Jesus has both the power and the authority to rescue us. Jesus, who, by the way, was completely surrendered to the Father's will, provided the only sacrifice that, that would not just forgive us of our sins now, but also rescue us from the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Luke chapter 1, the, the father of John the Baptist is prophesying. And he says this in verse 72. 
He's been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant with them, the covenant he gave to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. When we surrender to God, we tie ourselves to a much bigger story of grace. When we surrender to God, we tie ourselves to a much bigger story of rescue. And when we surrender to God, we also cling to a much bigger story of promise. You go back and think about those Israelites. They were clinging to a promise that God had made to them. Now, for generations, they had been longing for, they had been dreaming about living in a particular place. What did they call the place? They called the place the promised land. Why did they call it the promised land? Because it was promised to them. That was the land of promise. Look at Joshua 5.10. This is, this is inside the promised land. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The Passover was a very special meal. It was a very special memorial. We talked about memorials last week. It was a time for the Israelites to collectively remember and to reflect on a night many generations before when God uh, saw them as slaves in Egypt and delivered them from that Egyptian captivity. So they remember the fact that they had been delivered from captivity, and they also remember the promise that God will continue to deliver them. During the meal, you know, those, those people of God would reflect and remember that redemptive story, recognize it also as a promise moving forward. Notice in Joshua chapter 5, they don't just uh, celebrate the Passover. Something else very significant happens. Uh, verse 11. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. Okay, hit the pause button for just a minute here. The manna that is referred to here is, of course, that sweet bread that God rained down six days a week so his people wouldn't be hungry while they were in the wilderness. But after they eat from, uh, from God's promised land, that verse goes on to say there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now here's what I love about this. God's people are in the, the promised land. And they haven't fought a single battle yet. And yet God allows them to taste the promise that he's made. Remember, God promised, I'm going to put you in a land that is going to flow with milk and honey. I'm going to put you in a good land. I'm going to put you in a land that is going to supply your, your, your physical needs. I'm going to put you in a land where your flocks and your herds are going to prosper. They know the promise of God. And now, before they've done anything, they are literally tasting the promise of God. Now, fast forward again uh, to, to me and you. It's one of the beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus. We cling to, we align ourselves with the bigger story, the promises of God. Because God, Jesus, didn't just rescue us by dying on a cross. No, he, his body was put into a tomb. 
Three days later, he walked out of the tomb. He's raised from the dead. He displayed power over death. And his promise is a resurrection for us as well. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Romans chapter 6 talks about the fact that in baptism, we participate with Jesus in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That our old self is buried. And that we, we rise to walk in a brand new life, uh, you know, brand new people. Um, we, don't we don't just cling to the promise of this new life that's offered for us right now. We also cling to a very real promise of a resurrection someday. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, all the dead will be raised. And God will judge the living and the dead. And in that moment, no one will have been obedient enough to have remained in the covenant. No one will have done enough to have earned God's forgiveness. The only hope that we are going to have in that moment is the promise of a new life, the promise of freedom, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life that comes through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and our obedience to that. That's the promise that we cling to. That's why we surrender. And listen, I get it. I get it in our culture, this idea of surrendering, or surrendering to anything or anyone is not popular. I get it. You take Jesus out of this context, you take Jesus out of what we've been talking about this morning, and I get it. It doesn't make any sense. I get the fact that people that don't get Jesus don't get this, okay? I understand that people who don't understand Jesus won't understand any of this. From a human perspective, surrendering our lives, surrendering our will, it doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense when you connect it to a much bigger story. It only makes sense when you connect what we do and how we live our lives to this bigger story of grace and this story of rescue and this story of promise. And that all comes from Jesus. That is all Jesus. And you read about those first followers of Jesus back in the early church. They don't have any problem connecting these dots. And they don't have any problem telling people how to connect these dots. They don't have any problem. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. They're talking to people about Jesus. And they want to make it sure that the, the people understand it's not something that happens to your body. Not anymore. It's something that Jesus does to your heart. Listen, you think you're not a part of this story? Let me remind you of Colossians chapter 2. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. But not by a physical procedure. It was a spiritual procedure. The cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to a new life. Because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You see the connection Paul's making, right? It's not a big jump. That old self, it's been cut away. It's been put off. And the consequences that go with that old self, the consequences of you know, the death that went with that old self, the, the self-reliance, the pride, 
that went with our old self, that's done away with. That's gone. Now I'm relying on Jesus. Now I find grace in Jesus. I find forgiveness in Jesus. I find life in Jesus. I find eternal life in Jesus. That's what you get when you surrender your life to God. And really the news keeps getting better. Look at the very next verse in Colossians. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God, who made you alive with Christ, He, he forgave all, your, all our sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. We were dead in our sins. Jesus provides grace. We were in need of rescue. Jesus provided rescue. We were hopeless in the state we were in. And yet he extends the promise of this brand new life now and eternal life forever. This idea of surrender. It is a part of such a bigger story. You know, God called those Israelites in chapter 5 of Joshua to surrender. And again, they didn't complain. They didn't push back. They didn't argue about the command. They didn't argue about the timing. They just trusted God. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how that worked out for them. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but the walls did come down, okay? God is asking us to fearlessly surrender to Him. And I'm not sure what that looks like for you. For some of you, it's baptism. And that's where you are. For some of you, it might be changed some habits. Maybe it's the change of some relationships. For some of you, it might include a hard conversation. It might include a soft, gentle word. I don't know. But understand this. If you're going to live in the promised land, you're going to have to surrender to God. You cannot live in the promised land without being totally, fearlessly surrendered to God. And this idea of surrender, again, you know, the world can't wrap its mind around it. But it's part of such a bigger story. It's part of the story of grace. It's part of the story of rescue. It's part of the story of promise. When you go back and look at the New Testament, especially, you know, the Gospels, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the story of Jesus. Is there anyone else in the history of the world who better deserves our surrender. Why would you not surrender to that man who happens to be that God? We've got a song this morning that we're going to sing as a song of encouragement. As always, if we can help you in any way as a church family, we invite you to come to the front and let us know. Let's go ahead and be standing.